literacy is, is really at its core about interpreting and creating meaning. And so this is what is emphasized through the multiliteracies pedagogy. And it's also, though, about thinking about that meaning within cultural contexts and how that meaning differs and about also the role of language in, in, in societies. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Kate Paisani and Mandy Menke discuss their new book, Literacies in Language Education, and the benefits of a literacies-based approach to language instruction. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to speak with doctors Kate Paisani and Mandy Menke today about literacies in language education. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Kate and Mandy. Thank you. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Kate, you've been on our podcast before, but Mandy, this is your first time. So we always like to start things out by asking our guests about their background and path with languages and give a little introduction. So if you could both do that, uh, we would appreciate it. All right. Well, I guess I can start. So I just started Spanish in high school, like a lot of others Mm -hmm. here in the U.S. Started in in ninth grade with Spanish one and really loved it. Had my first abroad experience for three weeks, um, Mm -hmm. my senior year of high school with it and lived with the family in a very remote part, um, or remote in the sense of it was not with everybody else in the program. So I was a good 45 minutes away from any other um, high schoolers or my teacher. And so I think that kicked my language skills into high gear, or into high gear I had to survive. Um, then the whole way through through uh, college, continued to study with additional experiences abroad. Um, just one of those things that I loved getting to know other people, learning about how, how they lived, um, what what they thought was important, different ways of thinking about things, different ways of doing things. And so I just kept with it, so to mm-hmm. speak, and um, combined that with my passion for teaching. I had always knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a teacher. Nice. And so went into Spanish immersion, taught elementary school for a few years before I moved to the, to the post-secondary level mm. where I am now. Nice. Yeah, and I, it's interesting. I didn't know Mandy's story about going abroad in high school, and I was listening to her thinking, "Oh, I had we had such similar experiences," and then it fell apart after that. So <laughs> my experience wasn't the same as hers. Following the study abroad experience in high school, I feel like I kind of fell into languages. That languages chose me rather than me mm-hmm. choosing languages. I was always good at French. And so it came easily to me. I wasn't a very serious student in college my first couple of years. And so I was doing well in French. And so I thought, oh, I'll become a French major because I'm getting good grades in those Mm. classes. And then I decided, well, maybe I want to be a teacher, but I'm not sure. So I went to graduate school to get a master's degree and then went to France for a year and taught in high school and hated it. And Mm. I realized I didn't want to be a high school teacher, that I wanted to go back to school. And so I got a PhD and thought, well, I'll probably just get a teaching job. I don't really like research very much. Mm 
And then I got a job at an R1 university and sort of had to become a researcher. And I sort of fell in love with research after I was forced to do it to be able to keep my job. And so um, I feel like now, you know, being at Carla and at the University of Minnesota, I'm able to bring together my love mm-hmm. of language, my love of teaching at the post-secondary level, and my love of research by sort of having this practice-oriented approach to everything mm-hmm. that I do. Well, and thank goodness you were forced to do research and actually forced to publish because one thing we want to talk about today is the book that the two of you co-authored together titled Literacies in Language Education, A Guide for Teachers and Teacher Educators. So this book was just released last month. Congratulations. This is where we need sound effects. Yeah, Sam, you got to work on that. Seriously. (laughs) So your book gives language educators a very practical approach for designing and implementing a literacies-oriented language curriculum. This will ultimately help learners increase their proficiency and their cultural awareness. Can you please recap for our listeners what a literacies approach is and what its benefits are? Yeah, so um, I do want to say, you know, regarding the book, just so listeners know that we wrote this with practitioners in mind. So I know that some of the literature on multiliteracies pedagogy and a literacies orientation can be a little bit theoretical. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to fill a gap in a gap that we perceived there being in, in yeah. the research out there. So we really wrote this for teachers and for teacher educators. So I do want to um, highlight that. In terms of what a literacies orientation is, I think the easiest way to think about it is that it's an approach that prioritizes the interpretation and creation of target language texts. And so um, really what, what the approach tries to do is to allow learners to see how target language texts, including literature, but also infographics, podcasts, mm-hmm. um, film clips, um, even paintings and pieces of artwork, how those artifacts make meaning and what the connection is between the way language is used in those documents or artifacts and and how language that language connects to the way that the text expresses cultural products, practices, and perspectives. Mm-hmm. So it's a way of going deeper than just surface level comprehension of text or maybe underlining all of the verb forms in a text to mm, be able to yeah. understand a grammatical form, to really understand how an author makes choices, um, how how a text might reflect the cultures that students are studying. In terms of benefits, um, You know, there's lots of research in second language acquisition and language pedagogy that points to benefits in terms of students' proficiency development across Mm -hmm. interpretive, interpersonal, and presentational modes. The research also points to um, increased syntactic complexity, meaning that students can use more and more complex grammatical structures the longer that they do this kind of work with target Mm -hmm. language texts. They can increase the number of turns that they take in conversations, so they can, they're much more productive speakers. And there's also research suggesting that this approach increases students' um, cultural knowledge, as well as their ability to think critically about mm. that cultural knowledge. Nice. So how would you say multiliteracies pedagogy relates to the concept of literacies? Right, I think we have to step back and think about what literacies is, just a minute. And as we think about that, literacies is really at its core about interpreting and creating meaning. 
And so this is what is emphasized through the literacy, the multiliteracies pedagogy. And it's also, though, about getting thinking about that meaning within cultural contexts and how that meaning differs and about also the role of language in in, in societies, what role mm-hmm. does language play more broadly? It's not just about maintaining interpersonal relationships, although that is a piece of it. It's also about maintaining power in, in different cases. It is about positioning people. It's about sharing ideas and how how do we use language to do all those different things? So it's taking that step back and thinking about language and culture, I think just in a more critical way um, and developing the, the linguistic knowledge, their, their sociocultural knowledge, and mm-hmm. also that cognitive dimension. So that's, I think, what we get excited about with this is how with multiliteracies, it's really an integrated approach. It's not just any one of these different aspects, but that it really allows you to bring all of those um, components together at different moments and build one off of mm-hmm. another. Yeah. And just to add to that, too, I mean, the, there is actually a specific pedagogy that we mm-hmm. outline in the book. So we talk about four different activity types, also mm-hmm. called knowledge processes, that underscore the different types of learning that students can engage in around target language texts. So these are called experiencing, conceptualizing, analyzing, and applying. And in the book, we have one chapter devoted to each of those different knowledge processes with lots of examples examples for how teachers can put these sort of more theoretical ideas that Mandy and I have been talking about into practice in the classroom through the different types of um, activities that they structure around target language texts. Mm -hmm. So speaking of the classroom, what does this approach actually look like day to day, especially I think it's very easy to think about how you can use different types of texts and have your students reflect when they are at more advanced levels. Mm -hmm. But what does this look like in particular at the elementary level? So I think the the first thing is you have to just think about what type of text the students are interacting with, what you're Mm -hmm. going to do at an upper level. You're going to use different types of texts than you might use at a beginning or elementary level. So you might rely on texts that have more images, right, to support Mm -hmm. the the language. You might rely on texts that use familiar genres. And the thing with this is, is that we're analyzing how all those different features work together to create text meaning. So all of those are working together to support student comprehension of the text, but they're also mm-hmm. working together with um, within the text itself to communicate a meaning. So how are the images supporting or advancing a meaning? How is the organization of the infographic, um, if that's what you're using, sure. creating meaning as well? And so I think that's the, the first piece is text selection. And Kate referenced this in her, in that first answer around, you know, it doesn't always have to be a literary text when we use that yep. text. It can be a conversation too. You can look at it in an interview. Mm-hmm. How, how, do, how does the interviewer ask the questions? How, um, how does the way they phrase it change the way the, the, res- the interviewee responds? So I think there's, 
lots of different types of texts mm-hmm. that you can use. The other question that we get a lot then, of course, comes when you get think about the, the conceptualizing and the analyzing where the students are really homing in on whether it be the linguistic features or the the genre conventions of the text and how those are making meaning, or they're kind of zooming out and thinking about how this text and its meaning is um, situated or positioned within within a community or society. Teachers start to wonder, ah, they don't have the language skills to do Mm -hmm. that thinking, right, in in the target language. Um, And so we... talk a lot with teachers and we deal with this in the book as well about thinking about how we can scaffold some of the language for the learners. So you can give some sentence starters, for example, or you can give them choices to choose from, or you're very strategic about where you use that little bit of English. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's usually where teachers push back a little um, when you think about the beginning learners. Yeah. Like, this is too challenging for them. But it's not that it's too challenging. I think we just have to think about how we're organizing our instruction so that we can support all the different levels of their thinking and the ways that they're mm-hmm. interacting with the text. Yeah, and I think Mandy said a key word, and that's scaffolding. Yep. So because we're asking learners to engage in higher order thinking as they interact with these texts, especially at lower levels, we want to be able to scaffold those activities so that they can actually do what we're asking them to do. And so some of those knowledge processes that we referenced earlier are sort of lower order thinking, like more on the lines of um, not no, remember, remembering and knowing or whatever they are in Bloom's taxonomy scale. So you would use a lot more of those types of activities to lead you towards the activities that have students do more evaluating or analyzing or applying. Um, And so I think that's particularly crucial at lower levels. And then just from a curricular standpoint, um, you know, folks are thinking, oh, well, how will I fit this into my curriculum? Mm -hmm. I I have to cover so much grammar and so much vocabulary. Sure. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot with teachers and that we've experienced ourselves developing curriculum is that when you adopt a multiliteracies approach, sometimes you have to make tough decisions about what to include from your textbook. Hmm. And so making sound decisions about material that maybe isn't needed to cover so that you can go deeper into text and allow two days to cover a text instead of one day, for instance, so you can do those that more higher order thinking around text is really helpful because then you're working at a pace that makes sense for your learners too. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, can I jump in too here? And I also just want to add, as we think about that at a curricular level, it changes the role of texts. I think so often, right, we have all of our instruction that happens and then we think, oh yeah, we should, we need to watch a video or we need to read something, right? We think about the text as an add-on in addition to everything else that we're Mm. doing. I think Uh this pedagogy reframes that a little and it puts the text more in a central role. So it's not an afterthought, but let's start with this. Let's build from here. And because it's an integrated approach, we get to engage the learners with the different modes of communication. We get to attend to the language features and their linguistic accuracy. We get to look at all of the cultural components. And so it just, it it shifts kind of Mm. the position of the different elements and the role that they play within our curriculum. And I think that's another key piece as teachers think about like time, which is, you know, is always too short for for everyone. Sure. 
Yeah, and I referenced research. Uh, sorry, Angelica. No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> talking, I'm like it's making me think of all these things. Um, but you know, I referenced research about second language acquisition research that shows that students gain more complex grammatical structures over time when they when they learn through a literacies approach. I think mm-hmm. the other important thing to keep in mind is that by working with text, you're not losing anything in terms mm-hmm. of linguistic development. That in yep. fact, learners are learning language while they work with text, while they read, listen to, and interpret text. So that's another key thing that I think is very hard for teachers to wrap their heads around because they often see those two parts of a course as separate. Mm -hmm. And I was just about to say, let's ditch textbooks. We've been talking about that for a while. And just use texts. Upheaval. Chaos. We should should do an episode sometime angelica that's just just little snippets of all the the grenades that you like to throw into yes. academic spaces <laughs> yes, and just do them absolutely. get them all at once and uh <laughs> then you can read your angry fan mail um <laughs> but, it's, but it's true when we work with teachers they often talk about how rich these Instruction, instructional sequences are that sure. develop around the text but at the same time they talk about how they feel a little bit subversive right like they're they're being unfaithful in a yeah. way and mm-hmm. so um it is a little maybe revolutionary to talk about that in mm-hmm. some curriculum but i think people are becoming more okay with that they're they're accepting mm-hmm. it they're seeing yep. seeing how it can work yeah cool. that's great well, so what would ways of assessment look like in this framework? Do assessment practices shift then as well? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think, and I think that's really the, um, that's one of the hardest things to shift. Mm-hmm. And Mandy can maybe talk about that in relation to what's happened in her Spanish curriculum here at the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, when you're working in a multiliteracies approach, you're really thinking more about performance-based assessment than sort of accuracy-based sure. assessment, right? So when I was a language program director many years ago and we adopted a multiliteracies orientation, we sort of combined multiliteracies and communicative language teaching. We completely ditched traditional exams. We yeah, sorry. Right? No, a hundred. I, I agree. It, it was really hard for the instructors. You know, they, yeah. were, they were reticent, but they finally bought into it. We still had exams, but there were no accuracy-oriented exercises. There were mm-hmm. no fill-in-the-blanks. There were no grammar exercises. It was all grounded in the text. So, you know, we would do a little bit of sort of pre-reading where they had to recall some cultural information that was relevant that they had learned through their chapter. They they read a text that they had never seen before. They answered comprehension and interpretation questions, and then they wrote about it. And so it it feels like a familiar structure in a way because it's that sort mm-hmm. of pre while and post reading or listening or viewing. But the types of questions that we were asking were completely different. Um, it went way beyond just doing true false questions. And then we also um, did a lot of assessment where students would do writing activities that connected to a reading that they had done. So they would imitate the genre that they had read, or they would write an alternate ending to Mm -hmm. something. Um, And through that, they were able to demonstrate not only their cultural understanding and their understanding of the particular genre, but also what they had learned linguistically. Um, So I think that it does require um, subverting assessment, just like mm-hmm. subverting textbooks. I don't know if Mandy, Mandy might want to add to some of the well, I just, challenges. I think, well, I, I just think what you highlighted there is that it, it, it is 
the assessments within multiliteracies are performance-based, right? Mm -hmm. So we want students to apply the new knowledge and understanding that they have. A part of what they're applying is their understanding of how language communicates meaning in different contexts and whether it's appropriate for a given genre or not, right? Or an audience and who you're interacting with. Um, but also that it's multidimensional. Like when you listen to Kate's response, like right. it's not that we're focusing on any one thing at a particular time, but you have to bring those things together, which is what we do in real life when we use language. So I think those are two features of assessments that are important to highlight when you think about assessment within this framework. Um, I will just say um, within our program, as we started to to incorporate literacies principles into our our curriculum. Um, this was one of the challenging pieces because, I, and we, and this is embarrassing to admit, especially in a very public <laughs> format, but like we didn't follow backward design, right? I, I teach uh. this all the time, but so we got, <laughs> got a little excited and we forgot about the and so right, we knew what our objectives are. We designed the instruction, but then our assessment didn't match. And so what happened is our instructors really pushed back hard and they mm. fully embraced the new objectives and the instruction because they would say to me, but Mandy, they still have to do X, Y, and Z in this assessment. And so yeah. um, if the assessment, right, if those three pieces aren't in alignment, mm -hmm. it's not going to work, um, whether it be on the student side of things or on the instructor side of things. And so making sure that your assessments align with what your objectives are um, and that you have those ready to go when you when you roll something new out is really important. I think that was our big lesson. And so we, too, it's been a, it's been a process and we're still very much in that process, but we have scaled back the, the importance, the weight that are given to what might be considered more traditional exams so that there are mm -hmm. much more performance-based assessments where students are applying their, their new knowledge and understanding to new texts or to creating new texts. Um, and instructors, it took them, I will say, it took them about a, a year to kind of sure. to see like, okay, yeah, we still are doing this or to feel okay with it, but mm -hmm. they are on board now. So it, I, nice. you know, I think great. you have to give people time. You have to give yourself as yeah. a teacher time to try something new, to perfect it before you just throw it out because it didn't feel good. <laughs> yeah. Well, while we're at it, throwing out textbooks, we'll also throw out grading and grades <laughs> altogether, right? And really just look at how students increase in their proficiency and improve their performance. I like it. Focus on the learning. <laughs> Here comes another more emails to your inbox and go. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so the way that you structured your book is is really um, useful for for teachers um, because, and you already mentioned this. You guide the readers from experiencing to conceptualizing to analyzing to applying this pedagogy. Can you talk a little bit more about that and where educators should start on their journey toward integrating this pedagogy? Well, I think what Mandy said about allowing time is really important. I think when if folks are really curious about multiliteracies and they want to start integrating it into their curricula, I would suggest experimenting and starting small at first. Um, it can be time consuming to create materials. It's a it's an approach that 
takes time to learn, just like any new teaching approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say start slow and be easy on yourself if it doesn't go well at first. Take good notes after you implement a text-based activity. Try to figure out what worked well and what didn't, and then go back and start again. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a curriculum developer, if you're somebody who directs a language program and you're thinking about this more from a programmatic perspective, I would say, again, follow Mandy's advice and use backward design and don't forget <laughs> about assessment. So. Yeah. Um, you know, think about, well, what are your learning objectives and how do those align with multiliteracy's principles? And then how can we develop a multidimensional assessment plan that will realize those objectives? And then finally, think about the pedagogy. I know that sounds counterintuitive because mm. the book is really talking about pedagogy in many respects. But in the first half, we also talk about curriculum development. And so, um, you know, sort of doing that multi-stage backward design and then assessing and reassessing and tweaking and recognizing the fact that this may be a, a project that takes one to mm. many years sure. to implement um, can kind of um, take some of the pressure off, I think, um, when people might get overwhelmed by learning about something new. I don't, do I have anything to add? Yeah, I would just echo that idea of don't feel like you have to throw everything out and start from scratch, right? Yeah. I think starting with, you know, a, a lesson um, is a mm-hmm. great place to start. The other thing I we talk a lot about teach with teachers is that this doesn't mean you have to, I'm going to use that expression again, throw everything out that you've ever done. Yeah. Keep that toolbox. Keep yeah. those different activity structures. We're not saying that this isn't valid, right? Mm-hmm. That you sure. can't use those. What we're saying is we're kind of, I, I sometimes call it the plus, right? Like it's, we're doing this and a little bit more. We're pushing learners uh, in a little bit of different, different way. We're reframing things so that we're getting them to think about language and use language in different ways. Um, and so I think that's another big piece for teachers to think about. And and we highlight that, I think, in the book as well. We, we show where different activity structures, like an info gap, that they might be familiar with how yeah. that can, where you could use that um, within a multiliteracies approach. The other thing I might encourage teachers to do is, is find a teaching buddy, mm-hmm. someone that you can work with as we yeah. continue to work with teachers, mm-hmm. that, that the importance of community and, and learning in community has really been evident. It's been very clear to us through the different projects that we've done that that having someone to bounce ideas off of, having someone to work with and to compare understandings, it really advances what teachers do. It also makes them feel like part of something bigger so that they're not feeling like they're doing this on their own in an isolated way. And I think that's really important for our colleagues who are either in small programs or the only language teacher at their school um, is to find someone, whether they be local or within the the field at large that you can collaborate with. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Is there anything else you'd like to share about your book? Well, yeah, I, Amanda was just alluding to it in her last comment that one of the features that we like about it is that um, each of the chapters ends with a spotlight on teacher professional development. Mm. So we um, sort of put research on teacher learning around multiliteracies pedagogy and the multiliteracies concepts presented in that chapter into dialogue and present some ideas for teacher educators on how they might work with um, pre-service and in-service teachers to help them overcome some of the challenges of learning about and implementing multiliteracies pedagogy. Mm-hmm. So we really like that feature of the book. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that there is a companion website for the book. Great. And that um, can be found on the Carla website through the Literacies in Language Education Project. And I'll give you guys the links. I'll send you the links afterwards and we can post them up with the podcast. Yep. Terrific. But the companion website, all the all of the materials that we reference in the book are there on the companion website and they're available for free. You don't have to purchase the book to be able to That's access wonderful. the companion website. We really wanted these things to be open educational resources mm-hmm. that teachers can use and adapt and retool for whatever their needs are um, rather than kind of gatekeeping um, some of these nice. materials. Um, because we also know that there are not enough materials available mm-hmm. for teachers to be able to implement these yeah. pedagogy. So we wanted to sort of contribute to that. We, we love that here. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work in general? On the Carla website, I would say, um, as Kate referenced, the, the literacies project page, there's just such, we, I, we're really proud of that page. We have, a, I mean, there's more ideas of ways that it can grow, but I just think it has a lot of resources for teachers. Kate referenced earlier that one of the challenges of implementing this is sometimes the terminology is a bit opaque. And so we've really tried to, we have a glossary there with terms that link out to whether it be videos or other pages or images. Um, there are activities that teachers can look at there to get ideas, to kind of spur their thinking around how they can design activities within each of those four knowledge processes. And then um, there, one of the other things it's, is that we've been working on is relating multiliteracies to social justice too. Mm. Um, so there's a, another social justice project within Carla, and there are unit plans coming. Oh wow, show, nice! Like, so again, OERs right available for folks to, to use. Mm-hmm as they are to adapt and for their learning context, but that really exemplify these, the multiliteracies pedagogy, but put that in with social justice education as well. So I think there's the, my point in saying that is there's so many different examples of how you can enact the pedagogy available on the Carla website that I think that will be a great resource for listeners. Yeah. And, um, just a couple other things to add on to that. If you are multiliteracies curious, mm-hmm. um, but you also really love communicative language teaching, there are some resources mm-hmm. on the literacies page for you in that we have an infographic that compares multiliteracies and communicative language teaching um, because we have found that teachers sometimes have trouble teasing out the differences between those two approaches. And we also have a um, lesson analysis worksheet so that you can mm. sort of Think critically about what your textbook has to offer in terms of text-based activities and think about how to infuse those with more multiliteracies concepts. Um, nice. So those are there. And then in terms of learning more about what we're working on, in addition to the more practical resources that Mandy men- mentioned for both the literacies and the social justice projects, both of those project pages have information about the research that we've been mm-hmm. carrying out. Great. And so um, I think there are also videos of us presenting yeah. on that research and links to some of our publications. So if you're a researcher, we do a lot of research on teacher learning, teacher cognition and identity construction mm-hmm. around um, 
around teaching and um, issues of social justice and, and text-based uh, learning. So you can find information about that research on the CARLA website as well. It's, it's carla.umn.edu. And then when you go to the resources page, you'll see a list of all the different projects we have. CARLA has an extensive summer institute program. I think this year we're offering uh, 15 different summer institutes. Some of them are online. Some of them are in person here in Minneapolis. Um, and Mandy and I are co-teaching one. Um, I can't remember the title of it. Do you remember the title? It's <laughs> <laughs> really sad. Anyway, it's about teaching with target language text through a multiliteracies approach. Um, and uh, we will, uh, throughout the week, it's a week, an in-person workshop that lasts for a week um, here at the University of Minnesota. And we'll do sort of a introduction to multiliteracies pedagogy and working with target language texts. And then each subsequent day of the workshop is addressing one of the four knowledge processes of multiliteracies pedagogy. Nice. So we go in detail and we'll be using chapters from the book as, uh, as readings for that summer institute. If that's the one you want to take, the title is Using Target Language Texts to Support Students' Literacies Development. Wonderful. Beautiful. And come see us in Minneapolis in, in July. It's much better than it is in January. Yeah. <laughs> something something it has in common with Ithaca. All yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much. Um, before we sign off, we'd like to ask each of you to share a word in a language you speak, love, are learning, want to learn, that makes you chuckle. Each of you, let's hear it. So I love... <laughs> I, I reviewed the questions before I walked in, so I, <laughs> <laughs> <Smart>. uh, <laughs> um, I love the compound words in Spanish. Mm. They they I don't know the way words get put together make me laugh. So some of my favorite words. Um, so one of them is rascacielos, which is skyscraper, and then I also like escalafríos, which is like uh, what do we call them goosebumps, mm. and then um, one that a colleague of mine put together and it's and it, i use it on a weekly basis basis is so if we don't often teach class on friday so our thursday becomes our friday in a sense and so it combines thursday and friday into a word oh nice um and so that's actually i that might be my favorite um and a colleague coined that for me um Love it. so like i said i like compound words so I missed the memo about the word having to make you chuckle. And I was in, I was in the shower this morning trying to think of words, and none of them are chuckly words. But um, <laughs> off the top of my head in French, one of the words that I, I, I often like pick words because of the way they sound. I, I don't know if you remember when I, you interviewed me the last time, my word was libellule, which means um, dragonfly. And I like yep. the way that sounds. Yes, that's right. Yeah. But the the word that it just comes to mind that is kind of a funny word in French for me is débile, D-E-B-I-L-E. I also like the way that sounds. It has similar sounds to libellule, in fact. Mm -hmm. And débile means kind of stupid or silly. Um, so that's the word that comes to mind. Um, the word that I had actually picked was grace, but that's not a word that makes me Aww. chuckle. It's a word that just makes me think of how I would like to be in the world, show people yeah. grace and... and um, do things with grace and just, yeah, try to be a nice person, basically. That is a good one, too. That's, That's a an really important good one. one. Yeah. Yep. Under any circumstances. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, as Sam said, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking of language with us today, Kate and Mandy. Thank, Thank you for, you having, for us. having us. It was great to talk with you. 
With this episode, our 11th season of Speaking of Language is coming to a close. We will be back in September with new topics and guests. In the meantime, you can listen to our archived shows on our website at lrc.cornell.edu, on Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We wish you a great and happy summer, and we hope you tune back in this fall. Until then... Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu. Or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.